Those who wait on the Lord will never be put to shame. I know some of you this morning are probably feeling like that. Oh Lord, how much uh, longer? Those who wait on the Lord will never be put to shame. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the book of Nahum. This may be another one where you want to go to the table of contents uh, to find it. Uh, because it's just three chapters, very short chapters. Um, I think about 1,300 words altogether. We could probably read all of this in about seven uh, to ten minutes. But we're not going to do that. We will read some of it as we go. But turn with me to Nahum. And when you make it there, just look up at me and say amen. Amen. I still hear pages turning. All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, uh, this is your perfect word that we are about to hear, we are about to uh, learn from. And Father, I pray that we would receive it, receive it in our hearts. Uh, Because in all your word, there is a lesson that you are teaching us. And that is meant to transform our minds. And that is meant to renew our hearts. So I pray that by your spirit, you would do that work in us this morning. Would you open our eyes to behold the wonderful and wondrous things that you have prepared for us here. In Jesus' name, amen. The Tower of Babel, the Roman Empire, and the Titanic. What do all of these three have in common? They're all gone. You might say colossal accomplishments by man that in the end came to nothing. Colossal accomplishments of man that in the end were just nothing but dust. Well, I want to add one more to your list uh, here this morning that may be a little less well-known to some of you, and that would be the ancient city of Nineveh. Ancient city of Nineveh. Nineveh was, you could say, the unsinkable ship of the 700s and 600s BC in the ancient Near East. The Assyrian Empire was spreading across the globe rapidly. And as they spread, they were brutal to everyone they conquered, brutally sieging, raising, plundering the non-compliant. In 722 BC, this was about 70 years before Nahum's vision, they had brought the northern kingdom of Israel to their knees in submission, and they had brought Israel to nothing. They had sieged the capital of Samaria. They had taken their people captive. And they were well on their way. They were knocking on the door in the south. They were knocking on the door in Jerusalem. Judah at this time, the southern kingdom, having seen the destruction that Assyria did to Israel, was already pretty much owned by the Assyrians. They were so heavily taxed. They were sort of a a, a puppet state in submission to this great Assyrian empire. And Assyria's oppression of them and their continual threats against Judah were very severe. 
You might think of them as something kind of like, uh, if you remember ISIS a few, ba- a few years back when they were making their way through Iraq, ravaging villages, killing Christians and anyone who did not believe like them. And their goal was to take over the world, as silly as that may have seemed to us. Only the difference in this case with Assyria is that Assyria was having much greater success as a world power. Assyria had already brutally sacked the great Egyptian city of Thebes, which you can learn about here in the book of Nahum. Their expanse of the king, the expanse of their kingdom stretched now from what is uh, modern day Iran all the way westward to Egypt, which in that day would have been a massive chunk of the known world. In fact, uh, I'm told that it's 540,000 square miles. That was the extent of the empire. Now, 540,000 square miles, contrast that with tiny little Judah, about 3,500 square miles. This little tiny piece of land smack in the middle of this mighty empire being bullied by the Assyrians, but also in their past, we see allured and influenced by some of the pagan Assyrian culture. They had invited some of the gods in to their culture. In Judah's mind, I imagine, you can probably imagine, there was a feeling of dread that soon, like their brother Israel to the north, they too would be no more. Now, Assyria's capital was Nineveh. Nineveh was one of the most impressive ancient cities in history. For over 50 years, which included Nahum's prophecy, Nineveh is thought to have been one of the large or the largest city in the world. And surrounding the city, if you can picture this, was 7.5 miles worth of walls standing about 100 feet high in some parts The walls were half of a football field wide. Surrounding that was a moat 120 feet wide with 60 feet deep waters surrounding the walls. It was believed to be able to withstand a 20-year continuous siege. It was, you might say, the impenetrable city. Until it wasn't. Just a few years after Nahum's vision, this city and the whole Assyrian empire along with it would cease to be. Almost overnight, just as God had revealed to Nahum in this vision. It was brought to a complete end. Chapter 1, verse 9 says, What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Nahum says that their name would be perpetuated no more in verse 14, chapter 1. And in chapter 15, that they would be utterly cut off. I guess verse verse 14 of chapter 1 also, that they would be utterly cut off. They would experience a flood. They would experience a fire, the burning of their city. They would experience the sword. In 612 BC, the city would be flooded by the Tigris River. And that breach 
that would create a breach in the city walls that would lead the city to a vulnerability to attack such that the Medes and the, the Babylonians could get together and come in and invade the city. They plundered the city and they set it on fire, which we read about in chapter 2, verse 9 and 3, verse 15. And as Nahum makes clear, this city would be truly and utterly destroyed and forgotten, never to be rebuilt again, completely wasted and in ruins and forgotten. And in fact, the city was so forgotten that it really wasn't until 1845, think about like 1845 AD, when the city of Nineveh was discovered, excavated by British archaeologists. It truly was wiped clean from the face of the earth. The greatest empire in the world in the blink of an eye became an empire of dust. Everything that they had built, the walls, the city, the empire, were rubble and dust. All of their treasures and their wealth, the silver and the gold and their precious jewels were plundered by others. All of their gods were long forgotten. All of their kings dead. An empire of dust. Now, if you were Judah, if you were Judah during the time when Assyria was at the peak of its military might and its power the time of all of their threats and oppression and invasions, could you have ever in your wildest dreams imagined that this massive empire would cease to be just a few years down the road? I think you could have imagined that. Well, Nahum, the book of Nahum, the vision of Nahum, the oracle, it says, concerning Nineveh, is really, I think, a cautionary tale for anyone, any kingdom, but really a cautionary tale for us as well for what happens when a nation commits the Psalm 14 error. What is the Psalm 14 error? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, does anyone remember hearing about uh, the city of Nineveh and any of the other prophets that we have studied thus far? Jonah. Jonah. So we talked about uh, Nineveh not too long ago. And, and in the book of Jonah, that, that uh, prophecy would have been about 100 years prior to Nahum. So Nahum is kind of like a sequel uh, to the book of Jonah. And if you remember in Jonah, what happened was Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid that if he repented, if they repented at his preaching, that they might actually uh, turn to God and God would, would uh, spare them, that God would spare the city. And sure enough, Jonah went and preached and Nineveh repented and God spared them. They turned from their evil. And that was, as I said, about 100 years prior to Nahum. But it would seem perhaps by this book here that maybe after they were spared by God just a generation or two later, they had begun to presume upon the riches of God's kindness. God got them out of their terrible, scary, terrifying predicament, and now they could return back to their ways 
of defying God and worshiping everyone else. Ever since the Garden of Eden, I think man has been believing that lie that it is somehow possible to cast off the authority of God and to somehow build a better and bigger and longer lasting kingdom apart from him. Nahum is the cautionary tale of what happens when we defy God and presume upon his kindness that there will be no consequences, that he doesn't really care too much. And I say cautionary because it is a book of judgment in its time, in this place in history, but it's a book of judgment that I think foreshadows for us an even greater final judgment when all evil will be removed from the face of the earth and where, as Revelation makes clear, the city of this world, the way of this world, will fall and never be built again. Nothing will remain unless it belongs with God. Now, Nahum, oddly enough, do you know what the name Nahum means? You read through these three chapters of brutal destruction. The name Nahum means comfort. It might sound strange to us to read things like chapter 1, verse 6. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Or chapter 2, verse 6, the river gates are opened, the palace melts away, its mistress is stripped, she's carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose water runs away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin, hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all his all loins, all faces grow pale. Or three, three, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. At the very end, the way the book ends, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Does that sound comforting to you? Are you comforted by those words this morning, brother or sister? I think all of us would say it's a very strange thing to consider the brutal vengeance of God against Nineveh and to somehow think of it as a measure of comfort. It was certainly not a book of comfort for Assyria. It was certainly not a book of comfort for Nineveh, but that's kind of the point that God is making here. For those who are staking their lives on what they can build themselves, making a name for themselves, trying to be mightier than God, trying to outsmart God, for those who are investing in their own kingdoms, for those who are building up wealth or trying to make a great name for themselves, there is nothing more for them to expect in the end than devastation, than a pile of rubble. The author of Hebrews says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living 
God. But for all who cling to the Lord in faith, even in the greatest days of trouble, maybe this morning your hearts are overwhelmed by the troubles of this world, even in the greatest days of trouble, there is great comfort in knowing the one who will keep you to the end. So very briefly this morning, I just want to highlight three ways from the book of Nahum that we see comfort being brought to God's people. Comfort to God's people and how that can be for us, even today, a source of comfort for everyone who is trusting in the Lord. First, number one. Nahum brought comfort to God's people by reminding them that God's people are never forgotten. God's people are never forgotten. God reminded them that he still possessed a fierce covenant love for his people. And even in the midst of whatever trouble they would fall into, he was going to continue to be for them as verse 7 of chapter 1 says, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. God is telling his people in the midst of this great day of trouble for Assyria, in the day of oppression for Judah, that this kingdom, this empire that looks completely terrifying, that looks completely scary and intimidating to you now, it is soon going to fall and be dust, just like every other empire before it. But I, Judah, I, Center Baptist Church, whatever you are feeling today, I will remain a stronghold and a refuge for you in the day of trouble and that one that will remain forever. Thus says the Lord, chapter 1, verse 12. Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. God will, in fact, bring salvation and freedom from the oppression of their enemy. God is going to do that. He says in verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Here we see that God's coming salvation and his peace for Judah is going to enable them to enjoy him through worship. We see that a right response, the response that God desires of his people when he brings redemption to his people, is the worship of himself. Unlike Nineveh, who after they repented and they were rescued, they let that rescue be a reason to return to their old ways. God's desire for us in redemption is that our lives would be set apart 
to him to enjoy him and to worship him forever. And that should bring you great comfort this morning. That is the ultimate comfort of our salvation. That God has rescued us from the power of sin. God has rescued us from the domain of darkness. And he's done it in order that we may abide in him and live with him. And have the freedom to give our hearts wholly over to the one who is the ultimate giver of our joy. God is telling Judah here, giving them this, this comfort here. He's also giving us comfort for everyone who reads this today. I will remove whatever stumbling blocks are between you and me so that you can consecrate your life wholly to me. That line, behold upon the mountains, the feet of him who bring good news. We see that repeated again uh, in the book of Romans. And it's actually a reference back to Isaiah 52 as well. How beautiful are the feet of those, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who preach the good news. But Paul adds this in the book of Romans because he's talking about the Jewish people who have rejected Christ, who have rejected the Messiah. The very next thing he says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. God was rescuing Judah, and that was great comfort for them. But he was rescuing them in order that they would see that what he had in store for them for the rest of their lives was the best thing that they could ever have. And the reason that he has rescued you from sin, the reason that he has brought you into the hearing and believing of the gospel is so that you would submit your life to him and enjoy him forever. And friends, that is great comfort for us this morning. Second, it was a comfort for God's people in that Nahum reminded them about God's unchanging character. God's unchanging character. How many times would you say, when you find yourself in the thickets, when you find yourself in, in circumstances which feel over your head and you don't know what to do, that you begin to fear or you begin to express doubt that, that maybe, maybe God isn't the God who he said he is. Maybe his promises aren't really true for me. Maybe God isn't good all the time. How many times in the midst of those trying circumstances do we have a hard time seeing clearly who God really is? This certainly must have been the case for Judah. Well, what Nahum did in this vision is he started by reminding them of the perfect character of God. And whenever you find yourself in that place, whenever you find yourself overwhelmed by your circumstances, one of the best things to do is just to go back and to remind yourself or to go sit with somebody who can remind you of the perfect character of God. And so what does Nahum say about God in this vision? In verse 2, he says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. 
The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. And then in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. In many ways, this would have been a, a reference to how God revealed himself to Moses when he handed down the law. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If someone were to ask you this morning, how would you describe your God? Would you begin by saying, well, first, God is jealous. Is that what you would start with? God is jealous. That's how Nahum begins. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Now, for those of you who don't understand the meaning of the jealousy of God, and you're thinking, well, jealousy, that's, that's a bad thing, right? How is jealousy a good thing? Well, jealousy is not a good thing for us, the created, because for us, jealousy would mean that we are not content with whatever God has given us, and so we want what someone else has, or we want to be like someone else. But with God, jealousy is a very good thing. You should take great comfort in knowing that God is jealous because it means that he does not want our love going to other things that are going to keep us from him. A jealous God wants all of our love because he knows that he is the supreme source of the, full, of the fullness of life. Think of it like the fact that someday, I, as a father of a girl, someday, Iris, maybe when she's 29 or 30, she will meet a guy and she will bring him home to meet the parents. And suppose I were to detect that this person is not a good man. He is going to bring great pain to her. He is not going to lead her in paths of righteousness. As a jealous father, I'm going to do everything I can to, I'm trying to put it nicely, like, get that guy out of the picture. I'm jealous for my daughter's love and to bring her back into the home and say, no, no, this is what's best for you. Think of God's jealousy like that. He is going to remove the threat so that Judah can experience him in freedom, but he's also going to remove in Judah what is wrong with them so that they can experience him and enjoy him forever. God is jealous. God is avenging and wrathful. Is it, is it fun to think of God as an avenging and wrathful God today? Well, how about the fact that God will not let his enemy or the enemy of his people go without justice. Raise your hand today if you are grateful that there is justice in America. And I know you may critique different parts of it. There are injustices and, and things don't always work out right. But on the whole, just about every country that looks at us says, yeah, I wish I could live in a country like that where there is some measure 
of justice. Well, it works the same with God. God is creating for us. He is preparing for us this perfect home where he will dwell with us forever. And guess what? In this home, if there is to be any joy, if there is to be any peace, can there be any sin? Can there be any enemies of God in this space where his people are to live with him and enjoy him forever? No. And so it is a great comfort to know that God is going to deal with sin justly. But he also says he's slow to anger. It's a great comfort to know that he's slow to anger. Do you remember Nineveh in Jonah? How slow and patient God, way more patient than Jonah was with Nineveh, held out and held out and held out until at last Nineveh repented and God spared him. If you are here this morning, in whatever state you're in, if you're hearing my voice right now, God has been very patient with you. God has been very slow to anger because what all of us deserve on account of our sin, remember, we can't live in that space with God. What all of us deserve is his justice and his wrath. And yet in his goodness, he has provided a way for us to dwell with him. He is merciful. He is patient. He is slow to anger. But at the same time, again, Nahum says, he does not clear the guilty. I wonder if those sound like contradictions to you this morning. Nineveh is going to be punished because they are guilty, because they are enemies of God for their sin. And this tells us, and this is a comfort to us to know, all sin is going to be punished. All sin will be punished one day. And everyone who is guilty will be punished. For Nineveh and for Assyria, that meant that God was going to ordain another world power. And if you're wondering who this is that's doing all the, the bloody violence in this book, that would be the Babylonians, the Medes and the Babylonians getting together to invade the city and to take them out. God would direct that, would ordain that. God was not the author of the evil, author of the sin, but he would use the sinful choices of man to bring judgment on the Assyrians. And the Babylonians would wipe them clean from the face of the earth, as we said. But guess what? Babylon was evil. Babylon was guilty. And so God would also deal justly with Babylon. He would remove Babylon completely. You don't hear about the Babylonian kingdom today, at least contemporary speaking, contemporarily speaking. But that also means something else. If God is going to deal with the guilty. That means that we too will have to face the judgment of God, the justice of God. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that there is coming a time where he is going to judge, where Jesus is going to judge the living and the dead. So what does that mean for us? And how is that of comfort for us today? Well, finally, and this point is the point that is implied by Nahum, or, or it's the, um, the, the question that Nahum will, will pose to us that is going to be fulfilled later on as we look forward to what God is preparing. But it is a comfort for us today in that it shows us that although all of us are guilty, all of us, 
Really no better than Assyria, no better than Babylon. All of us are guilty of defying God in some way, shape, or form. All of us are deserving of God's justice. While all of us are guilty, it is a comfort to know that a merciful God has provided a way for us to be made righteous through his son, Jesus. Now here for Judah in this time, it's not having seen Jesus come to the earth, not having seen them with his own eyes. Here it's simply faith and the comfort of knowing that God is going to act to fulfill his promises. We've been talking about this all throughout the prophets, but what, what are some of God's promises? In them, all nations will be blessed. On the throne of Judah, God is going to set a king who will reign forever. How long? Forever, an eternal king from the ancient of days. And so in chapter 2, verse 2 of Nahum, we just simply have this line, if, if you're Judah. The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. He hasn't forgotten his promises. The Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunders have plundered them and ruined the branches. All they have to hope in is to know God is going to be faithful to his promises. God is going to restore the majesty of Jacob and the majesty of Israel. But we, Christians, are on the other side of the fulfillment of that promise. We know that the king has already come. That the king is sitting on his throne right now in heaven. We serve an ascended Lord Jesus who sits at the right hand of the throne of God and has all authority over heaven and earth. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20, this is a great verse as we're going through the prophets to keep in mind. All of God's promises find their yes in Christ. All of God's promises to Israel, all of God's promises to Judah, even his promises of judgment. Do you know that? God's promises of judgment find their fulfillment in Christ. We have an assurance that we can withstand the just wrath of God for sin only because of one person, because his son, Jesus, has already absorbed that wrath on the cross as our substitute. One of the ways you can read Nahum, and as you read it, just be completely terrified. It's, it's like a horror film, and you're reading it, and just the, the, uh, the brutality of it all, to read that and to think that is the just wrath of God poured out for sin, and to think Jesus was the propitiation. He was the wrath absorber for our sin. Just think about that for a moment. All, all the things you read here in Nahum, and I think Jesus must have endured something even worse than that as the just wrath of God was poured out upon him on the cross as a substitute in our place. He stood in our place. The ultimate comfort for Nahum for us today is knowing that we will never have to face God's awful punishment for sin because Christ has stood in our place if we are trusting our lives to Christ. Rest assured, that is your only hope of withstanding God's judgment. Your only hope that when all of the dust settles, you will remain 
beyond this life. Your only hope is in Jesus Christ. The fact that he died for you for the forgiveness of sins on that Roman cross. Now, consider your own life this morning for just a moment. What are you building right now? What are you most invested in? What are, are, are the plans that are kind of dominating your day-to-day life, the things that, that you want to accomplish, the dreams that you have committed to, your career aspirations, your family goals? What is it you're doing with your life? And now ask yourself, who is in control of those plans? Who is directing those plans? If God is not in them, or worse, if you are going through with these plans, if you are living in such a way in defiance of God's word, if you are rejecting and ignoring God's word, then know this, you are only building an empire of dust. You are only invested, you are only building, you are only making plans for something that one day will just be a big pile of rubble, will come to nothing. No matter how colossal an accomplishment it is in the eyes of man. What does God say to Assyria in chapter 2, verse 13? I am against you. You who defy the Lord, I am against you. He says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 5. And what do you plot against the Lord in one, chapter 1, verse 9? It says, he will make a complete end. Whatever it is you're building, whatever it is you're investing in, if it does not include the Lord, he will bring it to a complete end. Mike read earlier from Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Friends, if you are seeking refuge in God, if you are seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, and you're letting him direct everything that you do, then take comfort. He has not forgotten you. No matter how bad it may seem all around you, he has not forgotten you. He is going to keep you to the end. Long after all other kingdoms have gone, have come and gone, people have come and gone, styles and trends have come and gone, wealth has come and gone, you will be standing with him on that day. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2.17 We should take comfort in that. And we should take comfort also today in knowing that no matter how much evil you see around you in the world, and like I said, it's been one of those weeks, from the devastation in Ukraine to the devastation in Uvalde in Texas, to maybe even the devastation that you feel in your own home as a result of past sin. Know this, take comfort in this, God's character does not change. God has not changed. God remains good. God remains committed to removing evil, committed to bringing justice to the wicked. God is a jealous God who wants all of you to experience all of him, all of his goodness. And he is slow to anger. It's good sometimes to just remember how patient God has been with all of us. 
How patient has God been with you in your life? How patient has God been with you this week? How patient is God with us? And finally, take comfort in knowing that while he will by no means clear the guilty, take comfort in knowing that he has provided a way for sinners to stand blameless for him today. Where there is judgment for your sins, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is both just to put those sins away forever, and he is also your justifier who took your sins upon himself on that cross. So neither fear nor place your trust in the things that will one day end up as a pile of dust. Don't be afraid of them and don't place your trust in them. In the words of C.T. Studd, this life will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And if I could amend that just a little bit this morning in light of what we just talked about, this life will soon be past. Only what clings to Christ will last. Only what clings to Christ will last.